Hi, this is the Glencairn Podglass, celebrating 20 years of the Glencairn Glass, the world's favourite whisky glass. Hi, my name is Gordon Brown and today on the Glencairn Podglass, I'm talking to the founder of Glencairn Crystal Studio and the man behind the world famous Glencairn Glass, Mr Raymond Davidson. Hello Raymond. How are you doing Gordon? Not bad, how are you in this fine day? I'm fine, thank you. That's great. Well, as you know, uh, we're doing the podcast to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Glencairn Glass. But before we get to the glass, I think listeners might be interested in just a bit of background about yourself. You know, where you came from and and how you got the business up and running. I was born in Airdrie, a town about 10 miles outside Glasgow. And I left Airdrie Academy at 18 in 1965. Uh, and I served on a technical apprenticeship with an American company, Honeywell, as an environmental test engineer. Oh, that's what I end up qualified as. And in fact, the last project uh, I was involved in was the complete testing of the, the micro switch, which controlled the undercarriage of Concord, would you believe? So you were responsible for Concord getting off the ground as well as the Glen Cairn Company? Oh, built the whole thing, yes. Oh, that, that's good to know. <laughs> I should put that into the CV somewhere if I was you. <laughs> well, uh, I, I had a brief spell with the British Aircraft Corporation, BAC, and I was uh, interestingly, I was working in the Barnes Wallace Laboratory, you know, the, of the bouncing ball, uh, bouncing bomb fame. Oh yes, yeah, uh, and I, I was working on what was referred to then as the MRCA. It was the multi-role combat aircraft, which later was named the Tornado. But I had a desire to work in sales. Well, a desirous of a company car, to be honest. <laughs> and, and I worked for uh, Crown Paint and then Matchbox Toys. And that's when when all the kids in the street thought Santa drove a Cortina. <laughs> because I'd come back from work, there'd be a lorry load of uh, toys waiting for me. So I always knew when there had been a delivery. The kids were always around. That was great. Um, and then during that time, there was a a guy who worked on another division of Matchbox uh, where they supplied things like gifts and ashtrays and cigar boxes, all with vintage cars on them and the like. And he phoned me one night to say that he was uh, setting up a new company, uh, sorry, a new division for Edinburgh Crystal. And he asked me if I would be interested in uh, controlling Scotland and the north of England. So I did so. And then it soon became obvious that this new division uh, to service the corporate business, the, the, the company, uh, Edinburgh Crystal, weren't, they weren't set up to cope with it. They, they were used to uh, people going in and placing their orders. Because everything was for retail by all the, from all the crystal factories. Um, and here was a new division. And I would maybe call in a whiskey company, speak to the director, trying to encourage them to use... Uh, crystal for his decanters and so on and then when they eventually did place an order they expected it within a day or two and uh, um, Edinburgh Crystal would be saying okay we'll get that done in about three months which is sadly what uh, the industry we're looking for (laughs) so I I, I realised that there was an opportunity here uh, for someone if they they applied their, their thoughts to the customer i.e. the the whiskey company in particular, and they could satisfy all their criteria that they demanded, such as 
uh, well, fast delivery, uh, fill levels to be accurate, no lead leaching from the, the crystal to the whiskey. All of these things had to be addressed. And uh, I thought if someone can apply themselves to, to create a company that does all that, uh, there's an opportunity. And that's how it started, really. So you, we, yeah, you obviously decided one day in Edinburgh Crystal, I'm going to call it quits, and then I'm going to start the next day. How, how did you go about that? Well, with trepidation, as you can imagine, you pack in a job to start another. I, at that time, I was uh, playing uh, in bands and or uh, more often in bars on my own with you know, guitar and singing. And I just thought, if this doesn't work out, I'll just need to play five nights a week instead of two nights a week. But fortunately for everyone out there, the business was okay and took off. So did, did you still play, though, while you were working? Were you still playing the guitar on the odd night, thinking, oh, if this goes south, I better have something else up my sleeve? For a short time, I did, yeah. And even then, when, you, when I sold all the, my equipment, the guitar, the amplifier, speakers, mics... Wow, wow, pedals, all that sort of stuff. People still phone. Took a, it took about a year for friends to realise I'd stopped, and I'd you know they'd phone, they'd phone up saying they're looking for a guitarist singer, and I'd, I'd be saying, "Well, I've sold all my gear. I oh, don't worry about that. We'll get you gear." <laughs> so it took about a year before the uh, the message got through. I'd stopped. I was no longer doing it, and I was concentrating on the business. And in the business when you started, you must have had to develop artwork, you know, the materials that people need. Who did that for you? Well, initially I did that myself because uh, I was always quite artistic. I was always interested in art and so on. But I was introduced to a gem of a man called Jim Drysdale, who uh, was a freelance artist. And uh, by the time I got my first factory, a, a small factory, Jim was uh, I was giving Jim, I think, something like 90% of his business. Uh, so he, it was a natural progression for Jim and I to set up in the factory together. And he was invaluable. It was, and he was also one of life's gentlemen. The company would never have been as successful without Jim's input. He was such a talent. I, and did, did the companies react well to the fact that you were able to deliver that? Because it sounds like what you really did was, in some ways, started the B2B sector for the crystal world. Well, I, I decided to focus entirely on a corporate and, and uh, exclude retail completely from my operation. So I never uh, supplied retail. I was concentrating all on uh, corporate business and, and, in particular, the whisky industry, because I thought... As I said earlier, that if had, if I could supply uh, crystal decanters to the quality and the standard that the whisky industry requires, um, then that's where I should focus my business, and that's what I did. Uh, so, I, the, for the the main part, my de business was supplying crystal decanters to the whisky industry. But at that time, the the big boys were mainly focused on volume case goods. So my success was initially with the smaller whiskey companies who could see a, a premium to be had by putting their older rare whiskies into a, a fancy package. And, and indeed, my, my first uh, big order was to supply Cunard, uh, Cunard's QE2 with 5,000 
um, top of the range. Our Boswell Suite, which is still our top of the range, uh, Boswell decanters, ships decanters, um, and accompanied by uh, 5,000 boxes of six matching uh, whiskey tumblers. And that was, uh, the decanters were filled with 12-year-old Ockentoshin. That, that's, that, that's some some client to land. How, how did you land Cunard? Well, uh, I, some after the, the job was supplied and everyone was happy, I met up with uh, the vice president for procurement for Cunard. I met him in... Uh, uh, Martin Delahaye was his name. I met him in the, the Bull and Bear in the Waldorf in New York, and he was telling me how it came about. They'd asked several uh, of the all the well-known whiskey, uh, crystal manufacturers to supply a sample or to bid for the job, and they did the same with the whiskey industry. They got uh, samples of whiskey, and they told me that they had uh, a, a full board me- boardroom meeting in Trafalgar House, um, and uh, this was in London, and they had on the, the boardroom table they had loads of crystal dec- decanters laid out, and. Uh, he said, you wouldn't believe how uh, amateurish some of your competitors were. To take the bubble wrap off the decanter and there'd be a, a design of the QE2 sprit stick to the side, that sort of thing. He said, and we came along to yours and it was a, in a silk-lined uh, presentation box <laughs> with a, a suede finish with two, de- two glasses on either side, all engraved with the QE2 on it and so on. So he said it was a no-brainer because you were also the cheapest <laughs> so, uh, and then they did the same with it. Well, I don't know how they selected their whiskey, but they, there were several whiskies apparently for them to sample, and they prompt they uh, plumped for the twelve-year-old Ockentoshin. And from from this to this day, I'm very friendly with Brian Morrison, who was managing director of Morrison Bowmore at the time, because they owned um, Bowmore, Glengarry, and Ockentoshin distilleries. And did the company take off from there, or was it smooth sailing? I would hardly say smooth sailing. It was it was a, it was a great start, though. I mean, it took us a, to a different level. And I remember uh, um, getting paid promptly, which they, they were a great company to work for. And they, I invested all my uh, all, all my money in the stocks of the canters because to keep up this good reputation within the industry. I thought if I have the stocks there, I can turn it over quickly, and that satisfies the whiskey industry because if they are doing a bottling, all all the components have to be there on time, and the best way to ensure you have the component there on time is to have it in stock. But that really backfired on me at one point when the Japan... At that time, most of the premium products were going to Japan from Scotland, I mean, whiskey, and... Uh, the Japanese economy collapsed virtually overnight. And, of course, that's a huge impact on me. That was a frightening time. It taught me to diverse. <laughs> but uh, we managed to get over it. And that's why I, 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 when you think of things like people worrying about Brexit, I think that was a more difficult time for me than Brexit. Yeah, and and the company's now growing. It's now global. It's trading in what 170 odd countries direct, 140 countries with different products. What do you put the success of the company down to now? Well, I think from the outset we've always well the the boys, uh, my three sons came into the business, uh, and uh, it's only 
Andrew left to go back to university a couple of years ago. He's at Glasgow University just now. And uh, But the boys came in and helped. But even with that QE2 order, they were still at school and they came in to help in the factory. My, I, it was all hands to the pump. They had their friends in helping at weekends. My mother and her sister, who were both retired, and they, indeed they were my best workers. I had to get rid of them because they were making my good workers look bad. <laughs> So, uh, so no, the, the, I think family values is an important thing. And if you can apply that to your business, in other words, you're, you look after people, you, you, everyone's treated the same, you, you give them the quality they want and the service they want. I think anyone with that application will um, do pretty well. It, see, it sees you through all sorts of difficult times because people appreciate good service. And do you think that's part of the secret? Because over the years, many many of the competitors for Glencairn and some of the other crystal firms have been bought or sold or folded, and, and yet Glencairn keeps growing. What, 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 what do you put that down to? I think initially uh, it was my view, to, when I said it was my view to, to ignore retail and concentrate on corporate. So by the time... Uh, and, and retail took uh, retail took a thrashing for a long time, um, and as a consequence, a lot of the main as as the crystal manufacturers were supplying in the main uh, retail, and that proved to be a difficult time for the the crystal industry. And so many people did go out of business. And by the time they did start to concentrate in corporate, we were years ahead of them. So I think that's, that was to our, our advantage. And what do you think the future for the company lies? What, what do you think's ahead for Glencairn? Well, I think if we can keep going the way we're going, we've got a great staff. Um, we look after them and they look after us. And I don't see any reason why we should slide. I think we should still progress if we maintain the same ethics and ethos I think that there's a good uh, growth for us, especially as we're linked very closely to the whiskey industry. As the as the whiskey industry has grown, which it has done dramatically in recent years, especially the single malts and aged blends, uh, which is very much our domain, that uh, has been a tremendous help to us. The fact that we've we've been linked to them since well since day one, really. Yeah, and by domain you mean that's like creating some of the the most expensive, you know, decanters on the planet. Yes, I, I would think we're probably foremost uh, foremost company for supplying such things, and uh, we've got good reputation. Uh, people trust us, which is important. Well, that's great, Raymond. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we, we will, in a future podcast, be talking to you about the Glencairn Glass. But for the moment, I'd just like to say thanks very much to Raymond Davidson for coming along to the Glencairn Podcast. You're welcome. Nice to speak to you, Gordon. All the best. You've been listening to the Glencairn Podcast, celebrating 20 years of the Glencairn Glass, the world's favourite whisky glass. 